Got Risk Matters podcast. I'm your host on this episode, John Pendleton, and I'm here with my friend Barry, president of Crane Masters. How you doing, my man? I'm doing well, John. How about you? I'm good. I'm excited you're here. Barry is one of the uh, the best dressed of our clients. He's a great guy. Um, we are going to try and cover four things today. Uh, one, just Crane Masters, what you guys do, history. Two, how you guys view and handle risk. We're going to talk about your relationship with our team and then finish up with why you decided to take on a little more risk and join one of our Insurance Captives Generations group. Before we get into all that stuff, can you tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up? You have a pretty cool story. Uh, maybe we can get some Barry-isms out of you, which are words of wisdom that we've learned throughout our, our relationship with Barry. What were you like as a kid? Where'd you grow up? Help us understand that. We grew up in a little town right outside of St. Louis called uh, Jerseyville. It's actually on the Illinois side of the river. It's in the Midwest. Um, family was farmers. Dad grew up on a farm, uh, very agrarian community. Uh, Dad ended up having a business that was similar to this when we were kids. He had a shop right next to our house. And I used to enjoy going over to his equipment lot and roaming the lot after school or during the summertime or whatever and getting to hang out and see what all the guys were doing with the big Tonka toys and the big trucks. So, uh, Did you ever try and jump in and drive one underage? Uh, yeah. As a matter of <laughs> fact, there of was a, uh, yeah, when I was eight years old, I actually got in a truck in downtown Jerseyville and, and drove it out to uh, his shop. So uh, he uh, had challenged me to do that and threw the keys to me. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go run this errand. So <laughs> it was a good time. So, awesome. yeah. Um, what did your dad do growing up? So he started off in the trucking business and then he transitioned into a a salvage operation, then into railroad salvage, and then ultimately into the, the derailment services space himself. He was involved in that starting in the late 60s, and he did that work until the mid to late 70s, and then he transitioned into actually manufacturing cranes for the derailment service business and for other products for the railroads. And I feel like if I remember this correctly, your dad was just like you and, and Brian, super sharp, and did some crane design work as well. It's pretty unique. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, Dad was probably one of the physically hardest working, capable people I've ever met in my life. Even at the age of 50 years old, he could literally work circles around people half his age. Uh, naturally talented equipment operator, very brilliant person, uh, knew what he wanted in terms of performance from, from different aspects of, of pieces of equipment. And when he designed his crane, a friend of his that he went to high school with that actually worked for him at the time, they sat down and drew up a, a crane on the back of a napkin and uh, hired a professional engineer and, and uh, built the first one, which unfortunately was a little bit too heavy. Had to cut that one up for scrap, but the next iteration was very successful. And we actually have some of the units that he built back in the late 70s and the early 80s in our fleet today that we still use. That's awesome. Yeah. So great machine. Was he uh, was he hard on you? Were you were you guys getting in trouble all the time? You what was what was what was eight year old Barry like beyond just you know having the the gall to go drive a a vehicle down the street? Were you in trouble? Were you jumping off no. garages? No, I I actually wasn't a, a problem child. I I enjoyed being outside. I enjoyed uh, being around equipment and 
because of dad's work ethic, quite frankly, a lot of times I would, I would get involved in work-related type things even at an early age. So yeah. um, had a bicycle, would ride my bike to town and things like that. But by and large, I was a good kid, you know, yeah. did well in school and behaved myself, kept my nose clean. So uh, <laughs> yeah. things changed as I got older maybe. But um, Well, so you guys have a pretty interesting story. Um, maybe let's start with talk about what Crane Masters does and don't go too far into that. And once you kind of give the, the high points on what Crane Masters offers, maybe back up and go to the beginning of how Crane Masters started, because it, it kind of interrelates to your dad, his expertise. Yeah. And then we can roll all this into how you have a unique appetite for taking risk. <laughs> and like, yeah, like all of us, we're all a product of our own experience. So if you could kind of tell you know, hey, what does Crane Masters do? And then how did Crane Masters start? So we're a company that provides services to the railroad industry and to industries that have railroad tracks or, or use the railroads themselves. And we do uh, derailment recovery work. Uh, we also do load adjust and transfer work where if lading gets shifted in a car or has to be moved from one car to another because the car is damaged or, or broken, we'll do that. We do rail car repair work. Uh, for different industries and for railroads. And we also, a lot of industries have their own railroad tracks themselves, uh, power plants, chemical plants, rock quarries. The railroad has a point of responsibility where their track ownership ends and the industry has to take care of their own railroad tracks. And we provide the services of maintaining or constructing railroad tracks for those industries. Uh, in recent years, we've developed a, a business line of either remanufacturing uh, existing machines to a, a higher standard and a better design or actually manufacturing from plate steel brand new machines for for the railroad industry or for ourselves and you guys have a really unique set of not only cranes but then also tools and a lot of IP around that that is a big differentiator um, but before we go deeper like I said can you tell the story about your dad how this all got started because I think it's scary anytime somebody starts a business, um, but that contact is is particularly Im impressive from taking a risk and, and jumping in and figuring it out. Well, Dad was definitely a, a person that was more than willing to take a risk. He he didn't gamble like going to Vegas or whatnot, but he was he was always looking for the next adventure or the next opportunity, and that that may have contributed to his. Uh, financial malaise in the early 80s when through two back-to-back -back recessions and quite frankly some compromising decisions on his part he ended up having to file for personal bankruptcy so um, in the process of him being in the crane manufacturing business he sold some equipment to railroads and he also also sold some to uh, contractors one particular contractor had some equipment that he was not very successful in the business and he wanted to get out of the derailment services business. So having bought the equipment from dad, he called dad and said, Hey, would like to sell this. Do you know somebody that wants to buy it? And, uh, dad said, let me call you back. So he calls me and I'd spent one year in mechanical engineering school and said, how would you feel about moving to Richmond, Virginia and starting a train wrecking operation instead of going back to college? So, I don't care. Had you ever been to Richmond? Never. I didn't never been to Virginia in my life. So um but as a as a child or a young person I did a lot of traveling around the United States. When he was in business I drove 
vehicles around the country for him, either delivering parts or equipment or whatnot. So travel was not, not foreign to me, and I didn't have any aversion to a different neighborhood. Uh, Brother Brian, the other half-owner now of Crane Masters, uh, was working for another company that had recently been sold to a larger company in the United States, and he was about to go to work for that larger company in the derailment services business, and I suggested to Dad that we reach out to Brian and see if he'd like to join the party. So uh, we all got together and, and talked about who was going to do what, by when, how well, for the sake of what, and uh, came up with a plan. Unfortunately, none of us had any money. Uh, the guy that owned the equipment did 100% owner financing for us, and a friend of the family that owned the local hardware store there in Jerseyville, where we were from, was kind enough to co-sign on a note for $40,000 so we'd have enough money for payroll for the first six weeks. And that was in 1986, but correct. right before that, your dad declared bankruptcy in 85. That's correct. Yeah. So what could go wrong? Nothing. What'd you have to lose? <laughs> Nothing, right? So if you're at zero, you can't go any further down the hill. Right. So, uh, but yeah, my first day in Richmond, Virginia was Thanksgiving Day of 1986. I, I drove into town uh, from Pennsylvania that day driving a crane with uh, my at-the-time girlfriend behind me with my one spare tire and the pickup truck that was my escort vehicle. So, so it sounds like you inherited that appetite to take a chance. Uh, yes, sir beyond what I would say most people would have the guts to do. Uh, yeah, and I guess thinking back on it, you know, you talk about appetite for risk. I've never perceived myself as being an extreme risk taker, but when you, I guess, put it in the context that, that we are in this conversation, I could see where maybe that could be perceived that we are some, yeah. we do have an accommodation for risk. Well, I think there's always a balance, right? And it's so... Um, you know, you have all these great Barry-isms. Can you share maybe one of those? We, we have an ism that I'm going to share, but I think maybe good preface would be some of yours. Well, you know, when you, when you think about risk and, and being in different situations, you know, obviously if you're in a risky circumstance, uh, your nerves can get the better of you or, or they can play a part. So uh, one that comes to mind is nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> Which is totally clear. Um, well, one of our isms that we talk about a lot at Scott is um, embrace risk, reward performance. And so to your point about, not to put words in your mouth, but in your mind, you're kind of saying, yeah, it's a risk, but it's a calculated risk. That's correct. We're looking at it. We're going through a process. So it is technically a risk, but we feel like we're managing that well. And sometimes when you take those risks, there's a reward for taking it. If you manage it right, you're going to get a reward back. Um, you know, maybe talk a little bit more specifically for folks, because um, train derailments are really in the news, I feel like, the last couple months. Sure. I think people would be surprised at how often they actually occur. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe get a little more granular. When, when a train goes off the tracks, I mean, you're going out there with your cranes, and you're picking them up and putting them back on the tracks. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, maybe give folks an idea of how often that situation actually happens. On a national basis, it happens virtually every day. You know, they, they have over a thousand derailments a year, and a derailment consists of anything from literally one steel wheel on one side of the car coming off the top of the rail and, and striking around to multiple cars derailing. Yeah. So uh, just in the last 48 hours, we were called to a derailment there was actually two derailments that happened in Minnesota and North Dakota, and we were called to one in Minnesota where 25 cars had derailed. Yeah. 
and we sent our crews from uh, West Chicago, Illinois, and Maryville, Indiana, with with our specialized equipment to respond. So uh, it happens regularly. Uh, our equipment and our people are are very specialized and highly trained. <clears throat> you reference cranes. Uh, there's a lot of main manufacturers of cranes in the United States and across the globe, but they don't build equipment that is actually designed to do the type of work we do. Um, train cars are obviously very heavy and you don't have to lift them very high. So our equipment is not the conventional construction type equipment that you see. It's actually designed specifically to do this kind of work and we've contributed heavily to the design, which plays into that risk model that you talked about to help mitigate the risk that we have. We use highly specialized equipment to drive down the probability of anything going wrong on the equipment side and to give the customer a better product. Yeah, it's really neat. I mean, that's a big part of your competitive advantage, I feel like, compared to the folks you compete with. And you guys have really, over time, had have, had steady growth. You know, you guys started taking a big leap, and it could have gone wrong. Were there any moments along the way in between then and today where you felt like, I don't think this thing's going to work out, you know, where you thought, you know, you might be headed in a, in a really bad direction? Well, in 2000, excuse me, 2007, we took delivery of our first crane of the type that we use today that gives us a very heavy tactical advantage in response to derailments, and it was extremely successful. So we went back to the manufacturer and we ordered three more. Mm -hmm. And certainly we did a lot of uh, projections and we did a lot of cost analysis and we did all the things to help make sure that the risk wasn't greater than what the perceived reward was going to be. Unfortunately, we didn't have our crystal ball out and we didn't see 2008 and the housing crisis and the subsequent dramatic recession that occurred. And we took on our largest capital expenditure that we ever had in the company up until that point, and we lost about 30% of our revenue all in the same year. So that was a point of inflection for us in terms of evaluating risk and what can go wrong. Fortunately, uh, through Brian's and my continued dedication, hard work, contribution to the company, um, being able to stave off the banking industry to keep from basically foreclosing on us, we were able to repay every dollar that we had borrowed and ultimately prove even beyond a shadow of a doubt that the technology we invested in is as successful as it is. That's great. in some respects, it was very painful <clears throat> because we had to go through that forced growth during a recession, which sounds somewhat oxymoronic in a way. But the other side of it is, had we not been in that position of having to make that work, and we would have started that expansion three to four years later after the recession has had subsided, it's almost like the time value of money. We would have been even further behind today than what we are. So. Yeah, it's amazing how those things kind of work out. Yeah. yeah. So big risk, well-calculated risk at the time, but adverse conditions came along. Yeah. But through persistence and, and uh, I guess, believing in the product and believing in ourselves, we were able to overcome the adversity and be in even better postured for the future. Yeah. Well, I think I was trying to remember before we sat down when we first met and I think it was 2014. And Sounds about right. 
And so I'm interested in just kind of what your first impressions of our team was. Um, I thought I'd put you on the spot on that and, and just kind of see what your first impressions of our team was, what it's been like working with our team. Well, in 2014, uh, you know, with all that we'd recently been through with the recession and everything else, and, and quite frankly, having been in business at, at that point for a number of years <clears throat> and more than one potential vendor like Scott Insurance shows up at the door and they they talk about how they can change your life, how they can change your, your insurance, how they can change your risk profile through their risk management services and what I'd call blotty, blotty, blah. Another, bar- um, another barryism. You know, you guys obviously showed very well. You had, had uh, a very convincing or compelling argument to make or, or points to make, but there was a part of me that was the quintessential skeptic because, and I mean no disrespect to you or to Eric, but it was another insurance salesperson. Sure. So, you know, it's that, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of time. I'll be courteous. And and there was some of that that, that resonated for a period of time. But I'll admit through yours and Eric's persistence and, and uh, basically speaking the facts. You know, you guys are straight shooters. You've never once tried to make things sound better or look better than what they really are. And... Um, through some of the other conversations that we had about the risk management piece and, and case management, things of that nature, um, you guys were able to win us over. I think one of the things that was probably one of the most convincing things was I remember sharing with you some of our policies, and the policies didn't have any financial as- aspect to it, but it was just what the coverages were, what the coverages weren't, and after you having spent enough time listening to what we do and how we do it, you guys were actually able to unearth some coverages that we didn't have in place. So big confidence factor that, yes, you do, in fact, understand the insurance business. The people that we're with obviously don't. So through that discovery process, you definitely made me a fan. And, um, you know, we've really enjoyed engaging with y'all's team you know, over the years across a number of situations. And um, we're big believers um, in the fact that, you know, there's always a tension between risk management and and operations or getting the job done. Um, And I think sometimes it's tempting for folks in our seat to say, hey, look, you need to have absolute certainty before you do something. You you know, every accident's preventable and it's, you know, absolutely possible to maintain that. Um, our view in many cases is like, look, life is risky. If you're going to run a business, you're going to have to take chances. Mm-hmm. So let's acknowledge the reality of that, that um, every accident is possible. <laughs> and then it's a question of, okay, how do we, we know that? And then it's, how do we perform in that risk? And how do we make sure that ultimately we know we're going to fail at some point? It's just a question of how do we fail the least bad, for lack of a, you know other, other way to say it. And we've really enjoyed engaging with your team. Um, Alex Shaw is a member of our team who's worked with, with you all uh, from a risk management perspective. And then Kim Charlton, 
has really enjoyed working with you guys from just a proactive claims management perspective. Um, and I know that they would want me to tell you that, you know, they love working with your team. Likewise. Alex is a, a phenomenal person. Um, he's a very exciting individual and his approach to not only digging into what the risks are, but then ultimately figuring out how to, as you stated, mitigate those risks to the best of our ability and to, to fail the, with the least probability and to fail the least, I think he's excellent at that. He's, he's a phenomenal contributor, and, and we love having him as a resource that we can reach out to. Uh, you guys offer so much in the services, not just in reading the policy and making sure that the coverage is adequate. Alex and his group, Kim is amazing. She is, uh, I would hate to be the person that's on the other side of a claim if she's engaged. <laughs> um, she truly, truly does have the clients, meaning Crane Master's best interests at heart, and she fights tooth and nail for anything she can to support us, to help us with the best outcome from any claim that we do have. And she's obviously very, very knowledgeable and incredibly sharp, yeah, but one so driven awesome. woman that is just amazing. She's awesome, and, and we feel f- you know, fortunate to have her. Um, you know, going back to that comment of, of first impressions uh, on your part of us, I don't know if you remember this, but in that first, uh, maybe it may not have been the first conversation, but probably the second at least, one thing we talked about were um, just our view on creative ways to structure your insurance program. You know, insurance can be very frustrating because you can do all these things right from a risk management perspective. You have no claims or very little claims, and you're not getting a big check back, right? Yeah, the, the market is what it is, and because the auto industry or the auto insurance industry is what it is, everybody gets a 20% increase in their claims despite the fact that we didn't have any. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of times that kind of creates a little bit of an exhaustion on the part of the companies that are trying to do the right things. So one of the things we talked about in that first first meeting was just ultimately looking at an alternative structure or an alternative way to finance what is this huge line item, really for most companies. But in y'all's business, you're in you're doing things you know out there that an insurance underwriter is very nervous about. So that's a big spend for you guys. Sure is. So one option there is a group insurance captive. And so for those that are not familiar with that arrangement, it's where a group of companies come together to form an insurance company as owners of that company. They pay a premium to that new entity. They have the opportunity to earn back a large portion of those premium dollars depending on how they perform from a claims perspective. Ultimately, in a normal structure, you can't earn any money back like we talked about. Um, In a captive structure, you can earn about up to 60% of your premium dollars back at the end of the year. The alternative would be to leave those dollars on the table. So um, we talked a little bit of that arrangement. Um, you expressed some interest, but we kind of, you know, again, over the years we'd bring it back up, but it didn't really, you know, just wasn't right at the time. One of the aspects of a captive is when folks hear that word, they think, oh, man, that's really risky. And in fairness to that view, there is a mechanism called an assessment 
where if you do have more claims than predicted, you could be charged more money on that year. And one benefit of being in a normal structure is if you have a terrible year, you know, your rates may go up over time, but you're certainly not getting a huge bill you have to pay. Yeah. So when uh, people hear about captives, a lot of time they think, oh my gosh, aren't those so risky? Isn't my risk unlimited and I just have to keep dumping more dollars in if I have a really bad claims year? They're partially right that it is risky or riskier because you could be assessed. However, We've talked a lot about taking calculated risks in our conversation today and how you can be rewarded by taking calculated risks. What a lot of people don't realize is that while you do risk the possibility of being assessed the additional amount of dollars, that additional amount is capped. Each year, the max premium you may have to pay in our Generations Group Captive is quantified you know your exact risk going in each year. And if you're assessed and you have to pay that additional amount, the other protection is that you don't have to pay that amount in one lump sum. You can pay that over time in chunks. So really you're taking a calculated risk. And as a business, you're taking risk every day. And this is just one more risk, but it's informed And the good news is, unlike other risks you're taking as a company, this has a cap to it. You will not have to take unlimited risk. So kind of maybe ending where we kind of started, can you talk about why you decided, even though this was risky, to kind of move into a captive? You know, the, the fundamental idea is, you know, look, if you can manage and prevent claims, then you have that opportunity for reward. And as we said earlier, we're big believers, like, look, you gotta embrace a little bit of risk and to have that opportunity to get the reward. And that's kind of the fundamental essence of a captive. Can you speak to why you were willing to take that leap? Yeah, and I guess, let me back up in your story and talk a little bit about why I wasn't as interested whenever we first started having the conversations. Um, So, uh, you know, having just come out of the recession and thinking about were we to be a participant in the captive that we didn't hit our marks, that we did end up with that big bill that we had to pay. I had a concern as as our quasi-CFO that we could potentially end up compromising the company's cash flow model by having to pay a large assessment. So the the fixed uh, cost option was one that gave us more predictability in managing our cash, et cetera, et cetera. So, but through continuing to talk about it with you and Eric and learning more and more about it, that helped me overcome some of my ignorance about the, the program. And, you know, it, it truly does make sense. I, I saw us continuing to mature as a company and how we manage risk, how we manage incidents, uh, interacting with your team, having Alex as a contributor to what it is that we do and seeing us continually having steel sharpen steel, if you will, and that, that you guys were helping us to get better and that part of the captive environment is just that, that everyone works as a team to truly come together and recognize not only our successes but be more than prepared to talk about our shortcomings so that 
if I'm willing to talk about what I didn't do quite right, you can help me. So, um, and full transparency, the fact of the, the, uh, return on investment over a period of time, you know, it is, it is a long-term commitment. It's not something that you can step into today and be a part of for one or two years and walk away from and expect to get in any real return out of it. But, uh, Crane Masters being a, a long-term play for Brian and myself, I mean, this is our life. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to be engaged at the level that we are for the duration that we are, we feel like it's appropriate to be engaged with an organization like Scott and Generations Captive and actually continue to get better from an operating and a risk management point of view, as well as realize the financial reward on the back end if everyone does what everyone's supposed to do. So. Yeah, and a lot of people come to the captive originally for the financial benefits, and I think underestimate and undervalue, at least in the beginning, kind of a you know non-quantifiable benefit of being in a room with a group of other companies sharing best practices that usually starts around risk management because everybody's trying to maximize that return, prevent losses, manage the ones you know, that do occur efficiently, so those conversations start around risk management, but then they kind of, hey, what, what, do you do to, what are you guys doing to hire people or retain people? You know, they're, they're kind of an operational idea sharing aspect to it. For those that don't know, you know, with the captive each year, you project what the captive thinks you need to set aside for losses for that year. And we call that your loss fund. And if you end up having losses below that number, you're going to get some money back. It's a little more complicated than that, as you know. It takes about four years to get that first return. But after that, ideally, it becomes a snowball and you're getting returns each year. So to your point of it being a long-term strategy, it really is. And we kind of talk about it like a different lifestyle. Uh, and it's a different business strategy. It's not something you dabble in. It's it's something you vet. You do your due diligence on the front end, and then you jump in and and you embrace it. Um, you know, I, I have been impressed with you guys being really engaged in the risk control meetings. The captive has several committees, one of which is a risk control committee that Barry was somewhat referencing a moment ago, and they have meetings twice a year. And owners of the companies can come, operations people can come, safety folks can come. Those two meetings a year they're talking about, hey, what are you doing around, you know, workplace injury management? What are you doing with your vehicle fleet? All sorts of best practice questions, and you guys have just been really engaged. So Absolutely. I've been impressed. Um, They've been very informational, and, and I've enjoyed participating not only as someone that learns virtually every time I go to one, but yeah. obviously seeing the other people that are a part of this almost – organization you know the captive itself you get to meet the other people that are in the boat with you and understand that yes we all do have the impression of ourselves that we can be better tomorrow than what we are today well that's a good that's good life advice not just company advice so we may wrap it up right there my friend (laughs) thank you for doing this and uh thank you guys for listening and hope everyone has a great day